Stamps.com. Postage on demand. Print your own postage and ship your labels in seconds. Click instantly buy and calculate exact postage. Print postage labels, envelopes, or plain paper. Mail, affix postage and mail anywhere in the world. Give stamps.com to try. Get $5 of free postage. Check for offer details on stamps.com. Corporate postage solutions have more than two locations. Stamps.com Enterprises is the postage solution for you. Shipping solutions, process and print shipping labels fast, easy shipping, discounts, and more. Stamps.com U.S. postage meters. The choice is clear. Stamps.com offers more features at a fraction of the cost. Approved license vendor of USPS. Save big with discounted rates from USPS and UPS. Stamps.com is an independent vendor of the USPS and UPS. Uh, here's how it works. Open Stamps.com account. Simplify, simply click the Get Started button to sign up for Stamps.com and get access to all the services of the post office right from your computer 24-7. Even get discounts you can't get at the post office. Try it out with $5 free postage. Stamps.com will give you four weeks to see if they are right for you. Stamps.com is so confident you'll like them. They'll also throw on $5 free postage to use during the four weeks. Don't pay unless you stay. Cancel your account online or call one 855 to cancel in the four-week trial period and pay no service fee. The monthly fee is just $17.99 plus appreciable applicable taxes, if any, including the first month your service will continue uninterrupted as long as you do not cancel. Your 24-7 post office. Send invoices, letters, packages, print official UPS, USPS, postage, domestic, or international. No more guesswork. How much postage? What mail class? Stamps.com will figure it out for you. Eliminate trips to the post office. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk 24-7. Do more than a postage meter for less. Avoid hidden fees, equipment insurance and there's no extra hardware to buy or lease. Never pay full price or stamps again. Get postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. Customer support always ready for your help. Available by phone, email, or chat. Monday through Friday 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, PT. Uh, not just for small offices and mailings, multi-locations, solutions, shipping solutions, and warehouse solutions. ThriveMarket.com Healthy Living Made Easy Guaranteed Savings on Your Favorite Organic Brands Delivered to Your Door Healthy Groceries Shouldn't Break the Bank Low Price Promise Find a Product Cheaper Elsewhere Thrive Market Will Beat the Price How It Works Build Your Order Shop 6,000 or More Wholesome Products Curated just for members. Never run out. Get returning. <coughs> Get recurring deliveries on, on schedule personalized to you. You're in control. Easily add or remove items. Ship a skip a delivery or pause any time. Your new one-stop shop. From organic pantry staples to clean beauty. To non-toxic homes, shop by over 70 diets, 
and values, gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, safely sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry. <coughs> Watchdogs to identify partners who catch sustainable and traceable seafood. For $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days, trust-free, carbon-neutral shipping, free gifts and samples, every membership gives to someone in need, give for better for you and the planet, ethical and sustainable sourcing, carbon-neutral shipping, zero-waste warehouses, recyclable, compostable packaging, Thrive also gives every... Annual membership sponsors a free one for our family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make a organic foods more accessible. Here is part four of U.S. President number 29, Warren G. Harding. The Harding Tomb in Marion. Harding's death came as a great shock to the nation. He was liked and admired, and both the press and public had followed his illness closely and had been reassured by his apparent recovery. His body was carried to his train in a casket for a journey across the nation, followed closely in the newspapers. Nine million people lined the tracks as his body was taken from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., where he lay in state at the United States Capitol Rotunda. After funeral service there, the body was transported to Marion, Ohio, for burial. In Marion, Harding's body was placed on a horse-drawn hearse, which was followed by President Coolidge and Chief Justice Taft, then by Harding's widow and his father. They followed it through the city, past the Star Building, and finally to the Marion Cemetery, where the casket was placed in the cemetery's receiving vault. Funeral guests included inventor Thomas Edison and, the, and industrial businessman Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone. Warren and Florence Harding rest in the Harding tomb, which was dedicated in 1931 by President Hoover. Scandals. Harding appointed a number of friends and acquaintances to federal positions, some so competently, such as Charles A. Sawyer and Harding's personal physician from Marion, who attended to them in the White House. Sawyer alerted Harding to the Veterans Bureau scandal. Others proved ineffective in office, such as Daniel R. Christinger, a Marion lawyer, whom lawyer made comptroller of the currency and later a governor of the Federal Net Reserve Board, or Harding's old friend Frank Scobie, director of the men who Tranny and Wilson noted did little damage during his tenure. Others of these associates proved corrupt and were later dubbed the Ohio Gang. Most of scans that have Marred the reputation of Harding's administration, did not emerge until after his death. The Warren's Bureau scandal was known to Hardy in January 1923, but according to Traney and Wilson, the president's handling of it did him little credit. Harding allowed the corrupt director of the Bureau, Charles R. Forbes, to flee to Europe, though he later returned and served prison time. Harding had learned that Doherty's fact factotum as the Justice, Justice Smith was involved in corruption. The president ordered Doherty to get Smith out of Washington and remove his name from the upcoming president's trip to Alaska. Smith committed suicide on May 30, 1923. It is uncertain how much Hardy knew about Smith's illicit activities. Murray knows that Hardy was not involved in the corruption and did not condone it. Hoover accompanied Harding in the, on the Western trip and later wrote that Harding asked then what Hoover would do if he knew of some great scandal, whether to publicize it or bury it. Who replied that Harding, which Harding should publish and get credit for integrity and ask for details. Harding stated that it had to do with Smith, but when Hoover 
inquired as to tell if possible about Hardy refused to answer. Teapot Dome. The scandal which was likely done the greatest damage to Hardy's reputation is Teapot Dome. Like most of the administration scandals, it came to public light after Hardy's death and he was not aware of the illegal aspects. Teapot Dome involved an oil reserve in Wyoming, which was one of three set aside, set aside for the use of the Navy in a national emergency. There was a long-standing argument that he that the reserve should be developed. Wilson's first interior secretary, Franklin Knight Lane, was an advocate of this this position. When Harding, when the Harding administration took office, interior secretary Fall took up Lane's argument, and Harding signed an executive order in May 1921, transferring the reserves from the Navy Department to Interior. This was done with the consent of Navy Secretary Edwin C. Denby. The Interior Department announced in, Ju in July 1921 that Edward Doheny had been awarded a lease to drill along the e edges of the Elk Hills Naval Reserve in California. The announcement attracted little controversy as the oil would have been lost to wells on adjacent private land. Wyoming Senator John Kendrick had heard from the constituents that Teapot Dome had also been leased, but no announcement had been made. The Interior Department refused to provide documentation, so he secured the passage of a Senate resolution compelling a disclosure. The, the Department sent a copy of the release granting oil drilling rights to Harry Sinclair's Mammoth Oil Company, along with a statement that there had been no competitive bidding because military preparedness involved. Mammoth was to build oil tanks for the Navy as part of the deal. This satisfied some people, but not some cons conservationists, such as Gifford Pinchot. Harry A. Slattery and the others pushed for a full investigation into Fall and his activities. They got Wisconsin Senator Robert M. LaFollette Sr. to begin a Senate investigation into the oil leases. LaFollette persuaded Democratic Montana Senator Thomas J. Walsh to lead the investigation and Walsh read through the truckload of material provided by the Interior Department through 1922 into 1923, including a letter from Harding stating that the transfer and leases had been with his knowledge and approval. Here are the two. Teapot Stone began in October 1923, two months after Harding's death. Fall had left office earlier that year, and he de denied receiving any money from Sinclair or Doheny. Sinclair agreed. The following month, Hollis learned that Fall had spent lavishly on expanding and improving his New Mexico ranch. Fall reappeared and stated that the money had come as a loan from Harding's friend and the Washington Post publisher Edward B. McLean, but McLean denied it when he testified. Doheny told the committee that he had given Fall the money in cash as a personal loan, but uh, out of out of regard for the past association. But Fall invoked the Fifth Amendment right against self against self incrimination when he was compelled to appear again rather than answer questions. Investors found that Fall and a relative had received a total amount of four hundred thousand from Doheny and Seclair, and that the transfers were contemporaneous as the controversial leases. Fall was convicted in 1929 of consumption bribes and in 1931 became the first U.S. candidate to be imprisoned for crimes committed in office. Sinclair was convicted only of contempt of court for jury tampering. Doheny was brought to trial before our jury on April 1930 for giving the bribe that Fall had been convicted of accepting, but he was acquitted. Justice Department Harry M. Doherty was implicated in the scandal but was never convicted of any offense. Hardest appointment of Harry M. Doherty, as Attorney General, received more criticism than any other. Doherty's Ohio lobby and backroom maneuvers were not considered to qualify him for his office. When the scandals broke in 1923 and 1924, Doherty's many enemies were delighted at the prospect connecting him with the dishonesty and assumed he had taken part in Teapot Dome. Though Fall and Doherty were not friends, 
In February 1924, the Senate voted to instigate the Justice Department where Doherty remained Attorney General. Democratic Montana Senator Burton K. Wheeler was on the investigating committee and assumed the role of prosecutor when hearings began on March 12, 1924. Jeff Smith had engaged in influence peddling before a suicide, conspiring to with two other Ohioans, Howard Mannington and Fred A. Gasky, to accept payoffs from alcohol bootlegs to secure either immunity from prosecution or the release of liquor from government warehouses. Manning and Kasky's residence became infamous as the Little Green House on K Street. Some witnesses, such as Smith's divorced wife, Roxy Stinson, and corrupt former FBI agent Gaston Means, alleged that Doherty was personally involved. Coolidge requested Doherty's resignation when the Attorney General indicted that he would not allow Wheeler's committee to access to access to Justice Department records, and Doherty complied on March 28, 1924. The illicit activity that caused Doherty the most problems was a Smith deal with Colonel Thomas W. Miller, a former Delaware congressman whom Harding had appointed alien property custodian. Smith and Miller received a payoff of almost half a million dollars for getting a German-owned firm. The American Metal Company released a new released to new U.S. owners. Smith deposited $50,000 in a joint account with Doherty used for political purposes. Records relating to that account were destroyed by Dougherty and his four and his brother Miller and Dougherty were indicted for defrauding the government. The first trial in September 1920 resulted in a hung jury. At the second, early in 1927, Miller was convicted of served prison time, but the jury again hung as as to Dougherty. Through though charges against Dougherty were then dropped, he, and he was and he was never convicted of any offense. His refusal to take stand as his own defense devastated what was left of his reputation. The former attorney general remained defiant, blaming his troubles on his enemies in the labor movement and on the communists, and wrote that he had done nothing that prevents my looking the whole world in the face. Veterans Bureau Charles R. Forbes, the energy director of the Veterans Bureau, sought to consolidate control of veterans' hospitals and the construction in his bureau at the start of Harding's presidency. This power was vested in the Treasury Department. The politically powerful American Legion backed Forbes and denigrated those who opposed him like Secretary Mellon. And in April 20, 1922, Harding agreed to transfer control to the Veterans Bureau. Forbes' main task was to ensure that new hospitals were built around the country to help the 300,000 wounded World War I veterans. Near the beginning of 1922, Forbes had met Elias Mortimer, agent for the Thompson Black Construction Company at St. Louis, which wanted to construct the hospitals. The two men became close, and Mortimer, And Mortimer paid for Forbes' travels through the West, looking at potential hospital sites for the wounded World War One veterans. Forbes also Forbes was also friendly with Charles F. Hurley, owner of the Hurley Mason Construction Company of Washington State. Harding had ordered that all contracts be pursuant to public notice. <coughs> public notice, but the three worked out a deal whereby the two countries would get the contracts <coughs> with the profits divided three ways. Some of the money went to the Bureau's Chief Counsel, Charles F. Kramer. Forbes defraud, defrauded the governor in his hospital construction, increasing construction costs from 3000 to 4000 per bed. Attempted to inflated construction buildings were set aside. Set aside. 
for the conspirators with Ford receiving a third of the take. The graph then spread to land acquisition with Ford authorizing the purchase of a San Francisco contract. San Francisco tract that was worth less than 20000 for 105000 At least $25,000 of the resulting financial excess was divided between Forbes and Kramer. Dr. Charles D. Sawyer. Intent of making more money, Forbes in November 1922 began selling valuable hospital supplies under his control in large warehouses in the Perryville Depot in Maryland. The government had stockpiled huge quantities of hospital supplies during the First World War, which Forbes unloaded for a fraction of their cost to the Boston firm of Thompson & Kelly at a time when the Vans Bureau was, apply was buying supplies for the hospitals at a much higher price. The check on Forbes' authority at Perryville was Dr. Sawyer, Harding's physician and chairman of the Federal Hospitalization Board. Sawyer told Harding that Forbes was selling valuable hospitals to an insider con at first, Harding did not believe it, but Sawyer secured proof in January 1923. A shocked Harding, who alternated between rage and despondency over the corruption in his administration, summoned Forbes to the White House and demanded his resignation. Harding did not want an open scandal and allowed Forbes to flee to Europe, where, from where he 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 resigned on February 15, 1923. In spite of Harding's efforts, gossip about Forbes activity resulted in the Senate ordering an investigation two weeks later, and in mid-March, Kramer committed suicide. Mortimer was willing to tell all, as Forbes had had an affair with his wife, which also broke up the Forbes marriage. The construction executive was the star witness at the hearings in late 1923 after Harding's death. Forbes returned from Europe to testify, but convinced few, and in 1923, he and John W. Thompson of Thompson Black were tried in Chicago for conspiracy to defraud the government. Both were convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. Forbes began to serve his sentence in 1926. Thompson, who had a bad heart, died that year before commencing his. According to Traney and Wilson, one of the most troublesome aspects of the Harding presidency was that he appeared to be far more concerned with political liabilities of a scandal than in securing justice. Extramarital Affairs Harding had an extramarital affair with Carrie Fulton Phillips of Marion, which lasted about 15 years before ending in 1920. Letters from Harding to Phillips were discovered by Harding biographer Francis Russell in the possession of Marion attorney Donald Williamson while Russell was researching his book in 1963. Before that, the affair was not generally known. Williamson donated the letters to the Ohio Historical Society. Somewhere, some there wanted the letters destroyed to preserve what remained of Harding's reputation. A lawsuit ensued with Harding's heirs claiming copyright over the letters. The case was ultimately settled in 1971 with the letters donated to the Library of Congress. They were sealed until, until 2014, but before their opening, historians used copies at Case Western Reserve University and in Russell's papers at the University of Wyoming. Russell concluded from the letters that Philip, Phillips was the love of Harding's life. The enticements of his mind and body combined in one person, but historian Justin P. Coffey in his 2014 review of Harding biographies criticized him for obsessing over Harding's sex life. The allegations of Harding's other known mistress, Nan Britton, long remained uncertain. <coughs> in 1927, Britton, also a Maronite, published the president's daughter alleging that her child Elizabeth Ann Blasing had been fathered by Harding. The book, which was dedicated to all unwedded mothers and their innocent children whose fathers were, are usually not known to the world, was sold like pornography, door-to-door, -door, wrapped in brown paper. The late president's reputation had deteriorated since his death in 1923, and many believed Britain. 
the public was tantalized by salacious details such as Britain's claim that the two had the two had sex in a White House closet with Secret Service agents posted to ward off intruders. Although part of the public believe, part of the public believed her, a jury found against her when she alleged she was libeled by a ref, by a refutation of her book. According to Harding family lore, the late president was infertile and could not have fathered a child having suffered from mumps in childhood. Britain maintained that Harding had provided child support of $500 per month for the daughter he never met, but she had destroyed romantic correspondence from him at his request. Harding's biographers writing, while Britain's allegation remained uncertain, differed on their truth. Russell believed that Russell believed them unquestioned, while Dean, having reviewed Britain at UCLA, regarded them as unproven. In 2014, DNAs performed by Ancestry.com were were used by members of Harding and Blazing families to determine that Harding was Elizabeth's father. Sinclair wondered why Harding's infidelity was held so much against him, given that Grover Cleveland was elected president in 1884, and all, although it was known he had a mistress and may have fathered a son out of wedlock. Historical view. Upon his death, Harding was deeply mourned. He was called a man of peace in many European newspapers. American journalists praised him lavishly, with some describing him as having given his life for his country. His associates were stunned by, by his demise. Doherty wrote, I can hardly write about about it or allow myself to think about it, yet he stated, I cannot realize that our beloved chief is no longer with us. Hagiographic accounts of Harding's life quickly followed his death, such as Joe Mitchell Chapel's Life of Times of Warren G. Harding, our after-war president, 1924. By then, the, candles were the scandals were breaking, and the Harding administration soon became a byword for corruption in the view of the public. Words written in the late 1920s helped shape Harding's historical reputation. Mass in a pageant by William Allen White mocked his mocked and dismissed Harding as did Samuel Hopkins Adams' fictionalized account of the Harding administration, Revelry. These books depict the Harding's time in office as one of, the, of great presidential weakness. The publication Nam Britt's best-selling book disclosing they had had an affair also lowered the late president in public esteem. President Coolidge, not wishing to be further associated with his predecessor, refused to dedicate the Harding tomb. However, Hoover Coolidge's successor was similarly reluctant, but with Coolidge in attendance, presided over the dedication in 1931. By that time, with the Great Depression full in full swing, Hoover was nearly Hoover was neither as discredited as Harding. Adams continued to shape the negative view of Harding with several nonfiction works in the 1930s, culminating with the incredible era, The Life and Times of Warren G. Harding, 1939, in which he called his subject an amiable, well-meaning, third-rate Mr. Babbitt with the equip equipment of a small-town, semi-educated journalist. It could not work. It did not work. Dean deems the work of White and Adams remarkably unbalanced and unfair accounts, exaggerating the negative, assigning Responsibility to Harding for all wrongs and denying him credit for anything done right. Today there is considerable evidence refuting their portrayals of Harding, yet the myth has persisted. The opening of Harding's papers for research in 1960 sparked a small spate of biographies, of which the most controversial was Russell's The Shadow of Blooming Grove, 1968, which concluded that the rumors of black ancestors, the shadow of the title, deeply affected Harding in his formative years, causing both Harding's conversations conservatism and his desire to get along with everyone. Coffee faults Russell's methods and deems the biography largely critical, though not entirely unsympathetic. 
Murray's The Harding Era in 1969 took a more positive view of the president and put him in the context of his times. Trainee and Wilson faulted Murray for a tendency to go overboard in trying to connect Harding with the success the successful policies of cabinet officers and for asserting without sufficient evidence that a new more sort of Harding had emerged by 1923. Later decades saw revisionist books published in Harding, Robert Farrell's The Strange Death of President Harding, 1996, according to Coffey, spends almost the entire work challenging every story about Harding and concludes that almost everything that is read and taught about his death is wrong. In 2004, John Dean, noted for his involvement in another presidential scandal, Watergate, wrote the Harding volume in the American President series of short biographies edited by Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. Coffey deemed that book the most revisionist to date and false dean for glossing over some unfair evidence in Harding's life. Like his silence during the 1940 Senate campaign when his opponent Hogan was being attacked for his faith. Harding has traditionally been ranked as one of the worst presidents in, 19, in a 1948 poll conducted by Harvard University. Historian Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. conducted a survey of scholars' opinions of the presidents. Harding ranked last among the 29 presidents considered he has also been last in other polls since, which Farrell attributes to Scott's reading a little, but sensational accounts of Harding. Murray argues that Harding deserves more credit than his historians have given. He was certainly the equal of a Franklin Pierce, an Andrew Johnson, a Benjamin Harrison, or even a Calvin Coolidge. In concrete accomplishments, his administration was superior to a sizable portion of those in the nation's history. Coffee believes the academic lack of interest in Harding had cost him his reputation as scholars still rank Harding as nearly dead last among presidents. Trainee false Harding's own lack of depth and decisiveness as bringing about his tarnished legacy. Still, some authors and historians continue to call for a reconsideration of Harding's presidency. Murray argued that Harding sowed the seeds for his administration's polar standing. In the American system, there is no such thing as an innocent bystander in the White House. If Harding can rightly claim the achievements of a Hughes in state or a Hoover in commerce, he must also show the responsibility for a dowry in justice and a fallen interior. Especially must he bear the onus of his lack of punitive action against such men as Forbes and Smith. By his inaction, he forfeited whatever chance he had to maintain the integrity of his position itself and a favorable image for himself and his administration. As it was, the, consequent, the, subsequent, the subsequent popular and scholarly negative verdict was inevitable, if not wholly deserved. Notes. Kling was determined that his daughter be able to make a living if it became necessary, and so sent her to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. After the strategy, it became necessary. Harding apparently never knew with certainty whether he had any black cancer. Telling reporter, one of my ancestors may have trumped the fence. Although Harding did not invent the word normalcy, he is credited with popularizing it. The word, the other word that Harding probably was bloviate, which he said was a somewhat obsolete term used in Ohio, meaning to sit around and talk. After Harding's resurrection, of it, it came to mean empty oratory. Mencken never was voted for Harding. Harding resigned from the Senate in January 1920, waiting until Cox's terms as governor expired. Our Republican Governor Harry L. Davis appointed Willis, already elected to a full term of Harding's coattails to serve the remainder of Harding's term. By his departure from office in 1925, American forces had left the Republic and were about to leave Nicaragua. The departure from Haiti was still being planned. Thank you for listening to this episode of 29th U.S. President Warren G. Harding. Hope you enjoyed the four-part episode. 
Hope you stay safe during the coronavirus pandemic since 2021. Let's look forward to a normal state in, 19, in 2022. Now that the vaccine is out, if that can ever happen. And as always, thank you for listening and have a good week.